0: Welcome back to this week's episode of the Cogar Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our very special guest this week is Steve Quinn. Steve is on tour as the company manager with the National Tour of Wicked. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Steve, tell us to start with, uh, what is a company manager? Uh, basically, the company manager handles the day-to-day operations of the show on the road uh, travel and accommodation for 65 people and uh, dealing with a local theater on marketing and box office and kind of a, a catch-all type of position. It's very financial-based, um, but it's also very people-based. I have to deal with you know, 65 different personalities on tour. <laughs>
0: You've done this position both on Broadway and on tour, is that right?
1: Yeah, I've been with Wicked for 14 years, uh, company manager for close to 30 years. Where have you worked prior to these 14 years on Wicked? <laughs> uh, I primarily work as a tour manager. I did the tour of Hairspray, um, Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables. Uh, I toured with o- Donnie Osmond on Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and then uh, done Broadway shows, uh Fosse. Phantom and Les Mis and a few others that probably don't most people don't know because they didn't last for very long. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I'm going to get to in just a minute to talk more about all of these positions that support uh, the cast on stage on in any given show. But uh, can we talk just a little bit about um, you said tour management uh, and then you also did some Broadway. So w- what's the difference for you, when you're dealing with a touring production versus uh, a production in a theater that's
1: sat down somewhere? They, o- they both have their different set of uh, things to deal with, mostly with touring. Obviously, you're, you're closing and moving a show every two to three weeks or every month, depending on the tour, um, and you're going into a different market with different union agreements and different audience perspective and different size theaters and stuff. With a Broadway show... I mean, if you're lucky enough to have a show like Wicked or uh, Hamilton or something like that, the once the show is up and running, you hope that it's a little bit easier to maintain. I mean, they have their issues as well, and you've got to deal with the things happening in New York and cast turnovers and, and such. But um, I like the challenges of being on the road. Uh, I also like the fact that we bring Broadway to America rather than people having to go into New York. I find that very rewarding. So... That's kind of my reason for being out here. You
0: said there are 65 people on this tour. Yes. Uh, how many are in the cast?
1: There are 33 in the cast. The rest make up uh, crew members, uh, hair, makeup, wardrobe. Uh, stage managers, uh, physical therapists, merchandise managers, company managers. So it's a little traveling circus, as it were.
0: (laughs) And you've got a couple of advanced people that come out to a place like us for the beginning. Correct. And then do they go home before they jump out to the next load-in?
1: Yes. So basically with a show our size, we have two trailers that are advanced trailers, and they go to... Um, So there are two trailers waiting for us in Baltimore, which is our next stop. And we have uh, eight crew members that travel on Sunday of this week, and they will be there to load in those two trailers on Monday. While what we call the show-to-show trailers, the 11 trailers uh, will travel from here to Baltimore. And they work with us for the first four to five days, helping us set up, helping us train the local crew that assist our company and then they go back to their homes. A a lot of them have other jobs. Some of them are teachers, some of them do a lot of concert work and arenas and venues, and some of them do other shows like Lion King and Hamilton. They, They actually do that type of work on various different shows.
0: So uh, there's you on this tour, and you have an assistant company manager, and then there's a whole uh, stage management team. What's the difference between tour management, company management, stage management, to the uh, untrained outside
1: eye? So a stage manager deals with, in very simple terms, a stage manager deals with everything that's going on stage. So uh, David O'Brien is our PSM, and he is responsible for maintaining the show and making sure that it's the quality of the show that our producers and our directors want. So he will uh, rehearse the cast, d- deal with replacements, and so on and so forth. A company manager deals with all the administra- administrative stuff. Um, my job and his job only intertwine usually when there's disciplinary actions or we're dealing with certain things with the venue that we have to discuss in terms of space limitations, the things we have to adjust when we're in various cities, which is very minimal. Um, but we kind of work together, so.
0: And then there's a tour management company I see in the program that they help with the booking
1: logistics. Correct. The road company is our, what we call our booking agent, and they are responsible for booking the tour in the various cities throughout the country, um. And people often ask me how they determine what cities come next, and that's always the hardest question, because you'd like to think you could go from here to Charlotte to Greenville to, but no, it's it, we. I jokingly say that they put a a dart on a dartboard and they we go across the country based on what theaters are available and and the uh, amount of distance between theaters and their availability and stuff. So, um, also you don't want to be too close to a, another city because then you're. You know, people will travel from Charlotte and Greenville and those types of places to come see us here rather than wait and see it when they come there.
0: How much of the day-to-day travel, uh, personal life stuff do you get into with the cast and the crew, and how much autonomy do they have? Are are they booking their own travel from city to city? Are
1: they booking their own accommodation? Or are you doing that for them? We do that for them. On this particular tour, uh, we handle the travel to and from each city Um, the crew and most of the management staff have to get to the the next city on that Monday Uh, the cast we close on Sunday night they don't have a show until Wednesday so they can opt out of the flight to Baltimore and then they a lot of them are going back to New York City as you can imagine and they're gonna spend a couple days and then train down into the city so they would just get the reimbursement if there's a reimbursement for a flight what it would cost me to travel them to the city Um, With housing, uh, my assistant and I are responsible for providing two, hopefully, affordable, hopefully, within walking distance, uh, uh, properties uh, for the company. Uh, Here in uh, Colombia, that wasn't quite the case. A lot of the hotels nearby aren't necessarily budget-friendly for our tour, which is fine. Um, And then they also have uh, this particular tour where they can go on their own and use their per diem. And a lot of people are in Airbnbs throughout the city. Quite a few, actually. And are they responsible for their own transportation from
0: their hotel or wherever they choose to stay to and from the theater for the performances each day?
1: If they're in company housing, then we arrange for transportation, whether it be carpooling or in Boston we do subways, that sort of thing. So we are responsible. But if they're on their own, if they stay with their Aunt Rita and Uncle Henry, then they have to come, you know, they have to get their way to the theater.
0: And we've got a couple of those here. We do actually. Colombia. Yes. We've got a
1: couple of people staying with family, which is very exciting. It is fun, yeah, yeah. Our makeup uh, head of makeup, Joyce McGillberry, is from Colombia, so it's kind of fun that she's. Uh, she was very uh, excited last year when she actually saw it on the schedule. She was surprised and elated that we were coming to Colombia.
0: Um, the other part of the job is the business side. So you, we've talked a little bit about dealing with. Uh, the crew and the cast and the logistics of getting around. You, you were also a key point person with the uh, promoter of Broadway and Columbia that brought the show here as well as myself and other people at the Cogar Center. Um, we've sold a lot of tickets, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of people at, don't quite understand the way the business side of all of this works. And I, I'm not sure that we wanna get knee deep in that on the podcast. But you're the one that's dealing with ex- show expenses in the field and dealing with the uh, what, general management office. Sure. Is, is that the way it works? So can you, get, from your point of view, can you just explain to people a little bit about um, how the business side of show business, you know, this Broadway show business works with uh, you know receipts and, and uh, who, you know, what the difference between a, a general manager and a, and a promoter and a, uh, you know, uh, producer and all those roles that uh, exist
1: on Wicked really are. Wow, that's a lot, Um, but we'll do our best. So um, our producers, uh, Universal Pictures, uh, David Stone, Mark Platt, um, they're the ones who originally helped create this show. I mean, we can talk about that easily enough. Uh, Universal Pictures and Mark Platt were, um, had the rights to Gregory Maguire's novel. And they were in development for a film, and this was back in 2002, 2001, perhaps. And uh, they were having difficulty adapting the the film to the screen, and uh, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the music and lyrics, had read the book on a vacation and searched out who had the rights to the book. He wanted to buy it and make it a musical. And he found out that it was Universal Pictures and called Mark Platt, and he said, I think that this should be a musical. And if you talk to Mark, he'll tell you um, that's when the light bulb went off in his head. Um, And then through a series of workshops, um, they developed the show. Um, Mark brought in David Stone, who is our New York-based producer. Mark does a lot of uh, movies. He's done musicals as well, but he's primarily a movie producer. Uh, so we brought in David, who's got extensive Broadway credits and off-Broadway credits. And uh, so through a series of workshops, they developed the show. And, you know, 16 years later, we're the fifth longest-running show on Broadway. And Soon with, to be fourth. With, yeah, with no end in sight, really. <clears throat> so the producer handles kind of finding the creative team, finding the investors to say, hey, I've got this idea about a musical about the Wicked Witch of the West, and we need to raise... 16 million dollars or whatever the capitalization costs are so
0: and did they open this directly on broadway i, I know that back in the day yeah. uh, you used to do uh you know a tryout somewhere i, I remember the, the one that pops into my head is i think when newsies most recently came to broadway right. it, it moved from wherever it was in new jersey paper mill playhouse paper or someplace mill. uh to to new york uh did this have a Opening someplace, or it did they did. open it, it right it, on Broadway and it previews? It did
1: several workshops, um, private workshops, where they developed the story and they, they worked on the score. Um, it was a uh, two actresses, uh, you might know them, Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth, uh, were involved in, in the creation of the show.
0: So they um, were part of the workshop process?
1: Yeah, Kristen, I believe, I, I'm not 100% sure, I'm fairly certain. Kristen was involved from day one, um, and Adina was brought in a little bit later. Uh, but certainly involved in the creation. I mean, I don't think she was part of the original workshop. I believe that was Stephanie J. Block, who went on to play Alphaba on tour and on Broadway and as a recent Tony Award winner for The Share Show. Um, and then they opened up uh, in San Francisco at the Curran Theater in uh, 2002 uh, and did a six or seven week run there um, and they, they knew then something, they had something. It needed to be refined, it needed to be uh, changed a bit, it needed to be focused a little bit more, and and so they went back into rehearsal, and then they opened on Broadway, and that's kind of how it uh, was created. Yeah.
0: And then it's had two different touring companies, and you were a part of both of those companies, is that correct?
1: Correct, so, we opened the first national tour in 2005. Um, so that's just over two years, almost two years after it opened on Broadway? Yes. So uh, you certainly hope when you're developing a musical, whether Wick, Wicked or anything else, is that it'll have a life on the road. Um, and beyond that, obviously. Uh, so when the show opened on Broadway, they were already in talks of working on a on a tour. Uh, so the show um, opened... Uh, in Toronto the tour opened in Toronto and then moved to Chicago and the sales were strong everywhere as you can imagine Uh, but they decided to keep a a production in Chicago and then have a sit down production in Chicago which stayed there almost three years three and a half years I believe and then uh, we continued on with the first national tour now the tour again was built uh, in 2004 2005 so it's um It was a little bigger than the one that we have right now. Um, And we were also in markets that could only accommodate a show that size. I mean, it was 14 trailers. This is 11 plus two, so it's a little bit smaller. Um, One whole truck. One whole truck. But the interesting thing about that is when I moved from tour one to tour two, you'd have a really hard time distinguishing the difference between the two. Because of course, the second national tour, which is dubbed the Munchkin Land Company, um, and it's all a financial thing, um, but it's, I think it's very appropriate because it's a, a great group of, 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 I call them kids, my little munchkins. Um, but it um, uh, it was built much later so it can take advantage of better technology. So the stage is built more efficiently. There are a lot of things that were, we couldn't do in 2005, we could do in 2009. And the two tours ran uh, uh, concurrently for about uh, six years and we closed the first national in 2015, and now we just have this one particular tour. It was modeled very similarly, Um, Cameron McIntosh did similar things with *Fan of the Opera and with Miss Saigon and with Les Miserables, so we're we're following models that are very well established. I mean, you can can only have so much popularity with our show, and we wanna maintain that popularity with our, bad pun intended, no kidding, Um, but we wanna maintain that with our show, so we don't wanna oversaturate the markets.
0: So Wicked's been on tour with the two different productions for, what, what now, um, going on 17 <laughs> years? The tour is... Uh, Six, 15 years. 15 going, years. Going on 15, 15 years. years. on tour, yeah. And you, uh, you joined what year?
1: I joined in December of 2005. So right, almost at the beginning. Almost at the beginning. I was working on Hairspray Tour prior to that, and one of my mentors opened the first national and then passed the baton to me. Can you tell us a little bit
0: about your career and what leads you to get in a position (laughs) where somebody almost, I guess, handpicks you to hand off a show? Because (laughs) I imagine that being the person uh, in that position, taking out the first tour of Wicked, is an enviable one, one that lots of people would be interested in. So you didn't get there by chance. Uh, no. To, to, to Tell us a, about your career and, and what path a person takes to land in that position.
1: Um, I've always had a passion for theater since I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Iowa. I don't even know if I want to say that anymore after what happened the other day, but I grew up in Iowa. My condolences. <laughs> Thank you very much, my poor sister. Um, but anyway, um, and went to theater and was involved in the theater uh, programs in high school, and I went to the University of Iowa uh, and was involved in the theater program there. But one of my classes uh, was, I remember it specifically, it was called Art of the Theater. And they brought in various people in the theater field and their positions, like a lighting designer or a sound designer or an actor or a producer. And a gentleman came in, and he was the executive director of Hancher Auditorium, which is similar to what you have here at the Coger. And uh, back then, in the old and timey days, I wrote on my notebook his name and had to look him up in the campus directory. And I arranged a meeting the next day because that was my light bulb moment because I thought, I really like uh, theater. I, you have to have talent, actually, to perform in it. And I really can't sing or dance. But, <laughs> but I can add numbers really well. And uh, so I met with him the following day. And we talked about different careers in uh, administration and started working the following day, just printing posters and writing press releases and kind of absorbing what I could. Um, I then did uh, two years of graduate work at the American University in Washington, DC, studying arts administration, theater management. It's an MA degree. Um, So I continued to study um, voice and dance and then also did a lot of management stuff. And then uh, one of the requirements is uh, an internship Uh, summer internship, or a semester internship, and I did a summer internship, I helped launch the interns at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and it was very new to them, and after the first semester, they asked if I could stay on part-time, and then I finished my degree, and they changed my position to a full-time position, and I was there for seven years before I started being, I was an assistant company manager on different shows being produced at the Kennedy Center, uh, one called Sheer Madness, which has been running there now for 20-some-odd years, <laughs> almost 30 years, I think.
0: I, I've seen it there.
1: Yeah, there you go. And um, and then uh, was offered a job as a company manager on Fan of the Opera in Toronto. So the, there was a sit-down production in Toronto. So I moved to Toronto and did several shows for a production company up there, and then uh, went back to New York and started working back in New York and then back on tour. So that's kind of the career in a nutshell.
0: So... Mm-hmm. There's a moment in that story where it sounds like you were just in the right place at the right time and then it all fell into place. But I know that no one is just in the right time in the right place. And can you talk a little bit more about what you did when you were in the right, at the right time in the right place that actually got you going? Because it's not just as simple as standing there. Um, you, you, what I'm hearing is, is you transitioned uh, from being a student into a full-time job at the Kennedy Center, right. um, and that doesn't happen by accident.
1: No, I mean, the. Uh, I, I don't want to say I, I fell into it, because that's not true. I really studied and wanted to do it, but it was one of those things where, <laughs> again, I, I feel like I'm so old now, and I really don't think I am, but back in the 80s, there weren't a lot of people who were trained to be theatrical managers I mean a lot of people were performers that ended up ended up becoming managers but there wasn't I think there were only something like 12 or 14 universities throughout the, the country that had a, a master's degree in theater management or arts administration and the one at American University was a, a MA not an MFA so it focused both on management and the artist and I feel like because I was a performer, in my younger days, um, I could sympathize with the artist as well as understand the managerial side of it. So I feel like I bring that to the table. Um, the Kennedy Center was going through a transition at the time, and I just—I—I I don't want to say I fell in fell at the right time at the right place, but part of it was when they were—we uh, produced a show, uh, brought a show over from London called Les Miserables, and it became Les Miserables. I mean, it was kind of. Very fortuitous, and uh, you kind of get your teeth there. I mean, I was, it's a nonprofit organization. Anyone that knows theater knows that nonprofit isn't the most lucrative thing. So, you had several jobs that I did, you know, through graduate school from catering to working as a waiter and doing all these things, in addition to working at the Kennedy Center. So, it's a It's a glamorous title, but it's, you know, I was was a production assistant, an assistant to a general manager, but that's where you get that type of experience, and that was the most valuable thing for me, was having the Kennedy Center is the largest uh, presenter of ballet and opera in North America, or was at the time, and then we also bring in Broadway uh, musicals and plays, so I was the point person for all these people coming into the Kennedy Center, so I created a lot of contacts that way, and literally a gentleman that was a company manager on a show, I believe it was Bye Bye Birdie with Tommy Toon, uh, was at my desk and he said, are you gonna sit behind this desk forever or are you gonna actually be a company manager because you'd be very good at it? And he called me six months later to recommend me for a job and I begrudgingly left, but it was a great decision.
0: Can you tell us more about uh, managing people on tour? So there are, as you said, 65 people. Um, It's not just being good at numbers. It's not just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I imagine things work their very best when everyone's happy, healthy, excited to be there. Uh, Touring can be challenging, even on a tour as, quote, luxurious, unquote, as a wicked tour. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you keep the morale up, how you... Anticipate problems. How you keep people, per, you know, in their best spirits uh, when they, some of them have been out on tour for almost a decade.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of turnover here. We had a new actor debut last night in an ensemble track, so the changeover keeps the company fresh and keeps things exciting for us backstage. Having sixty-five people and sixty-five personalities to deal with isn't always easy, um, but. You rely on a group of people. I mean, each department has a department head. Um, You wanna say basic things like keeping communication open and having having an open door in my office and being able to talk to people. And I will spend probably a good half hour prior to each show stopping by the dressing rooms and stopping by the crew and making sure everyone's happy and just having a discussion. Because if I just sit behind my desk and do the numbers and Deal with the box office and the advertising, then I'm, I'm neglecting people who need attention, and it, it may just be as some just knowing that you're there and knowing that you're supporting them that helps, um, and that's what I've learned from managers that I studied with over the years. I mean, it's, you know, again, basic managing 101. You'd like to think, but a lot of people don't do that. I mean, being able to get out there and know everyone's names and ask about their families and what's going on on their vacations and how they're feeling and stuff. I mean, you do have ups and downs on these tours. I mean, you know, we're dealing with a little bit of a flu bug going around and everyone's trying to stay healthy here, but this is why we have understudies and swings and we have, you know, people who are ready to perform it at the drop of a hat. So...
0: Who makes the final decision as to whether you know someone is too sick to go on? Whether you need to put on an understudy or a swing, does is is the actor say, uh, "I need, uh, I need somebody to step in for me," or do you sometimes look at them backstage in the hallway and think, "You really need to not infect everyone else, and we're going to put somebody else on for you"?
1: In general, with illness and colds and and flu. The actor has to decide that. We can't force someone out. We can strongly recommend and say, you're putting other people at risk with a flu or a cold, but ultimately in every industry, people go to work sick. Um, It's just a little bit more of an incubator back here since we're all in a very tight space (laughs) in every theater we go to. But they often will talk to our production stage manager or to me and and say, I I don't know if I can or not. Um, With a situation like the Alphaba, the Green Witch. um, I mean, we've had many instances that they come in thinking they can do the show and they either during the warm up process backstage in their dressing room, they can't do it. Or they get on stage and they think their voice is okay and it's actually not. And that's why we have a standby ready to go on, uh, which can be prepared in about seven or eight minutes. We can get her green and, and on stage very quickly. And we all know, I mean, we know the show so well, we can hear it in the monitors. We can hear it in, just based on previous performances that they're not up to what their standards are. But again, they ultimately have to make the decision, but they're nonverbal cues and certainly visual cues, big eyes and kind of looking off into the wings, I, <laughs> saying, "I can't sing this," that we, we put the wheels into motion to put someone else on stage. And injuries happen during the show as well. And we have, we have three male swings and three female swings who their only responsibility is to understudy all the ensemble tracks. and they you know, hopefully they get notification if someone's on vacation or, or whatever. But oftentimes, they'll be in the middle of the show and someone will tweak their back or they'll sprain an ankle and, and they have to be you know, thrown in in literally five minutes. And they're, they're the unsung heroes of our, our show, in my opinion. They're, they work very, very hard. I mean, uh, I have a hard enough time doing my job, let alone understanding up to eight or nine different ensemble members. It's very difficult. Do you have a favorite
0: story that you could share with us about being on tour with Wicked? I would imagine that they're... Every venue must have its sort of memorable moments, both positive, negative. Uh.
1: Yeah, I. there are lots of different ones. There's one in particular that sticks out. It was um, during our first play in New Orleans. And as you can imagine, uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the show was the Hamilton of its day, I like to say. And we were sold out before we walked in the door. And it was a, a Saturday night of our last weekend. And we were in the middle of the show, and I had left to go home to my hotel, and you know, obviously we still had cell phones back then, um, but power went out. And uh, we didn't know at the time how quickly power would be restored. Um, so I got a call from my stage manager saying, you need to come back, there's been an issue at the theater, so I rushed back to the theater. And they decided at the last minute that we would ultimately have to cancel the show and we were three-quarters the way through it um, and we we needed to come up with an alternative as a manager you you want people to leave very happy and you hate to cancel a show Um, but also as a manager I want to keep the money because I want to keep the producer happy especially when the show is three-quarters the way way through so uh, the production stage manager and I discussed this idea Um, we weren't going to have power. Um, What ended up happening was uh, there was a fire in a neighborhood nearby and they cut a power line. So we decided that if you've seen our show, the penultimate number is for good at the end of the second act. It's a beautiful duet with the two witches, uh, and most people know it, and it's a highlight. And so we thought what we would do is tell the audience uh we would do an acoustic version of for good so we had to go to the two witches the Alphaba and the Glinda and uh ask them to perform on a stage with no microphone and neither of them have ever performed without a microphone and they were scared to death because uh, I, I don't know how old your audience members are but people don't sing like Ethel Merman anymore so we have microphones for a reason um but I told them to trust their instincts and trust that the audience would listen to them. So we um, set them center stage. And I always joke with my friends and family that if you see me on stage, there's something definitely wrong. (laughs) And I had to appear on stage and tell the audience um, that we could no longer continue the show, but we wanted to do something special for them. So because we had no power, um, this is where a very creative stage manager comes into play. Um, we had all the stagehands uh, lined up in an arch around them in a three-quarter ring, and they had their flashlights on, and they all put their flashlights on the two witches, and then we had one stagehand on the piano player, because we had to roll out a manual piano, because all the keyboards are electric, right? So we um, we did an acoustic version with just piano and the two, two witches, and they sang for good, and you could hear a pin drop in the house, and It brought the house down. Everyone was elated and excited that they saw something very special. The next day, they still wanted their money back, Um, but we dealt with that on a future (laughs) engagement in New Orleans, but you know, we do something. And it's nice because you, when we were in, we went to Houston and and subsequent cities where people could come to see the show, and I would actually see people, I don't often get recognized, but because I appeared on stage, They they came up to me and they said we saw the show in New Orleans where the two witches sang with the flashlights and the forget it's a it's a really great memory and it's that's one of the reasons why I love theater I mean we they're very creative people that do this job and and create special experiences.
0: It reminds me recently when Midtown lost power and there were stories of the casts Broadway casts coming out on the sidewalk and serenading people on the streets yeah. because uh, you know the shows because the dark. shows
1: couldn't go on and they, they wanted to give the audience members something and of course that yeah that was the that was a great way to give back to the community. I mean people especially in New York even here in Columbia, I mean you don't want to cancel a show or in New Orleans, you know, because people save money for this and so for a lot of people you know there's an old adage for someone for, there is always Someone in the audience that this is their first Broadway show, and there's also someone that this will be their last Broadway show. So that's motivation for the company to continue to perform at the top of their game. So I say that when most company members join the tour, and it, it rings true because it's you don't want the show to be something that's very uh, mechanical or robotic, you want it, it's an organic thing, and it, it the, uh, the company feeds off the audience members, and the audience members here have been great. I mean, they were a little reserved at first, but now that people have been talking about the show, they're a lot more vocal and they're, they're having a great time at our show. I mean, it's unfortunate we have to leave this weekend.
0: Well, we hope to see you back in a few years. I hope so. This is a
1: lovely city. We've been having, I will say I've never, in 20 some odd years of touring, I've never played Columbia. I've played everywhere around here, but this has been an absolute delight getting to know this city and, and, So many nice restaurants.
0: (laughs) Um, Speaking of that, do you have anything you'd like to share, uh, since this is a fairly local podcast? Do you have a favorite Columbia moment thus far, a favorite place that you found that maybe, as an outsider, um, so many of us grew up here or have been here for a long time,
1: and we overlook some of the great little things. Some of the great things that you have here. I was actually at the museum this morning, uh, first Thursday of every month is free. I did not know that, which was nice, so I got to go to the museum this morning for free, um, and then uh, last summer, I was on a cruise, and someone was, a couple was wearing a, a, a Gamecock t-shirt, so I asked if they were actually from here, and it turns out they were, and we exchanged information. They had already had their tickets for Wicked, so I didn't have to plug the show, and we had dinner on Monday on my day off, and we had a nice visit, and they're so excited to see the show this Saturday, and We'll give them a little look backstage, and it, it just, it, you know, it's, it's a great city. It's nice. It's also fun to be in a university, a big university city, with the women's basketball team doing so well, I wish I could get to see a game. But, you know, we work at night, so, and, you know, can't often do those things. But it's nice. It's a nice energy in the city. We like it a lot.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming here yourself, bringing the show. We're all excited to have you here, and we look forward to the repeat visit whenever that may come. Absolutely. We'll be around. (laughs) This has been the Cogar Center Arts Roundup podcast. Uh, Our guest this week has been Steve Quinn. He's the company manager with the National Tour of Wicked. The Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at cogercenterforthearts.com, the official website for Cogar Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.